This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Andrew Foyce. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on the Federal News Network. My name is Andy Foyce, the host of this show, and I'm the chair of the Administrative Conference, which everyone refers to as ACUS. Uh, producer today is Eric White. ACUS is an independent federal agency, the mission of which is uh, simply to make government work better. And we focus that effort on making recommendations to improve federal agency administrative procedures. Uh, This episode will take us between the lines of the important and timely issue of agency use of machine learning, algorithmic tools, and artificial intelligence, all at how it relates to agencies' administrative proceedings. Of course, we all know that uh, AI exploded on the scene about a year ago with the appearance of ChatGPT. We've learned since then that AI has the potential for amazing applications both inside and outside of government. One of the ones that I like is uh, the release on November 2nd of a new Beatles song, uh, which is actually going to be the last Beatles song. And they used AI to take John Lennon's voice uh, from a scratchy, poor recording that he did on a boombox and add uh, Paul's vocals and Ringo's vocals and uh, instrumental and put it all together so that they had a new song. It's called Now and Then. But, of course, these applications don't come without risks, including, frankly, that they are uh, sometimes wrong and they can be biased uh, in their analysis and results. And we'll talk about those risks. ACUS have been very active on the agency use of AI in the last few years. The Assembly has issued a series of recommendations to agencies and statements for agencies to use when they're using artificial intelligence. Uh, We've also conducted a symposium in 2020 to explore the subject, and we have a uh, roundtable that is specifically dedicated to the use of AI by federal agencies that meets and works um, several times a year. Let me be clear up front with you that uh, only recommendations adopted by the Assembly can be attributed to uh, ACUS positions. AI and other algorithmic tools have been around long before ChatGPT. Federal administrative agencies were among those utilizing the tools in some of their proceedings years ago to achieve agency functions. And what are those functions? Some of them are regulation and rulemaking investigation, enforcement, adjudication, and licensing. We will look at what algorithmic tools are and what they can do, how they are being used by federal agencies today, what oversight is required, what legal doctrines are implicated, and what the future may hold for agency use of AI tools. To provide answers to these questions, we are joined by four highly accomplished experts in the field. So let's get to it. Our first guest, Dan Ho is a nationally recognized expert in AI and administrative procedure. He's a professor of law and political science at Stanford University. He's also, amongst his many positions, the associate director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. He's written extensively and imaginatively uh, on AI, and he's also an ACUS public member and has co-authored a report for ACUS on federal agency use of AI. Professor Ho, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks so much for having me on, Andy. Oh, it's our pleasure. Could you start us off by um, explaining somehow what algorithmic tools are and uh, so what, what we're talking about when we use those terms? Sure thing, Andy. The notion of artificial intelligence can be expansive, but by and large, what we're talking about in the most recent years has been forms of machine learning that are essentially very sophisticated forms of pattern matching trained on very large volumes of data uh, that might include, for instance, the entire internet. And of notable uh, concern recently has been the models that have been deemed as forms of generative AI that, uh, based on this form of pattern matching, are also able to generate novel forms of text, imagery, and sound. 
I see. Um, well, that's understandable to the lay listener, um, I think. So uh, building on that, what, what do you see as the potential benefits of uh, AI and uh, machine learning on the public sector? And if, if you can't speak particularly to um, federal agency administrative procedures, um, uh, that would be perfect. Well, yeah, Andy, I, I could not think of a more consequential area where AI can have an impact. One startup uh, founder here in Silicon Valley uh, once quipped that the current innovation ecosystem is taking the world's brightest minds and getting them to get people to click on ads. And imagine if we could take the power of that technology and devote it towards the modernization of our administrative and public sector systems. So there are already uh, amazing forms of innovation happening when you think about application areas like uh, HHS's ability to use AI to predict infectious diseases, uh, EPA's uh, proceeding to potentially use remote sensing to identify methane flares, or when you think about benefits adjudication systems that uh, are under the Department of Labor and the states that administer these uh, for unemployment insurance in the pandemic that affected some 45 million uh, individuals. Uh, those are the kinds of systems where the rapid advances that we're seeing with AI can really have some very important improvements on how these systems are administered, uh, but obviously also pose very important uh, risks that have to be uh, evaluated um, and mitigated. Federal agencies do um, a, a bunch of different things in the administrative space. Um, regulation, rulemaking, adjudication, licensing sometimes, um, enforcement. Um, is there a particular function that you think that these tools would be most effective in helping? Well, I think it's actually hard to imagine an area that will not be affected by AI in some shape or form. So if you think about the executive order that requires uh, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs to think about the implications of automated technologies on notice and comment, that has really profound implications on rulemaking, both in terms of the risks when you have automated comment uh, submissions, bot-generated comment submissions, uh, but also some of the opportunities, for instance, to use generative AI to explain very complicated rules, to improve engagement of a wider set of individuals in what one administrative law scholar called, quote, the greatest innovation of modern government. In the same way, I think for adjudicatory systems, uh, that occur in the administrative state where the high volume of claims has been really a fundamental challenge for agencies like the Social Security Administration, the Board of Veterans Appeals, or uh, uh, unemployment insurance determinations. There, you also see very significant implications of AI. One of the uh, greatest uh, innovation case studies here comes from the Social Security Administration that invested in some of these tools early on and had built out a system that enables adjudicators, for instance, to upload draft decisions into a system that will spot one of about 30 quality flags that adjudicators can look over from the simple things like you've cited the provision of law that doesn't exist to internal consistencies between the finding of fact and the legal conclusion reached in that decision. And these are really welcome developments that can assist adjudicators who are often overwhelmed by the magnitude of the record and the very little time that they might have to be able to issue a decision in this kind of a case. Mm. You, you mentioned the risks a couple of times. Can, can you talk more uh, about that uh, for us, please? And especially... Um, I'd love to hear about the potential for bias that that um, uh, somehow these systems have exhibited so far. Well, Andy, you've noted one important one, which is bias. Many of these systems that can still err in unwarranted ways, and uh, there are a really wide range of uh, concerns about the adoption with these kinds of systems, including the potential implications for privacy, the labor displacement concerns, cybersecurity concerns, the way in which generative AI could be used to augment misinformation or disinformation, and notions of more speculative forms of catastrophic risk. To 
give you the example of bias, we've seen time and again that there are ways in which automated decision-making systems can really encode forms of historical bias uh, from existing data. One example that is fairly widely known was Amazon trying to build out a resume recognition system to hire engineers and automate forms of that intake process. And very quickly, Amazon found out that what this natural language processing system was doing is it was systematically downgrading applicants that had graduated, for instance, from women's colleges, because at that point of time, there were simply very few uh, female identifying engineers as part of the, the workforce. And those are the kinds of things that have to be assessed and addressed uh, and understood in order to responsibly deploy an AI system. Yeah, so how do uh, we address those? Are there any oversight models that have been effective in, in detecting and uh, compensating for these uh, potential errors? Well, the key thing is awareness. It's really important to be able to assess disparities in the kinds of outputs that algorithmic decision-making tools yield. And sometimes that awareness may also point us towards existing disparities in non-machine learning systems. After all, a machine learning system typically learns to encode forms of existing biases. That said, there's also a real potential for the kind of transparency that may come along with the adoption of a, of a machine learning system uh, when the legacy system may not have that form of transparency uh, to really understand disparities in a way that we didn't before. Our team worked in a collaboration with Treasury co-authors a number of years ago when we had been thinking about the use of machine learning for tax administration. And we had to build out a kind of framework to really be able to assess the potential for disparities. And one of the big challenges there was that IRS does not observe race and ethnicity on the 1040. So we had to build out a framework to be able to do that. But that led us to discover some pretty disturbing disparities in existing non-AI legacy systems, uh, namely that black taxpayers were audited at about three to five times the rate as non-black taxpayers in a way that was not uh, explained by differences in underreporting. And so here, the level of transparency can also really help us diagnose uh, some of the risks in existing systems. I see. You've talked about amazing things that uh, AI-generative systems can do for um, administrative agencies. Are there any major barriers uh, that um, might be insurmountable for agencies to adopt um, these technologies? Yeah, that's, it's a great question because I think agencies across the administrative state are really thinking about how to build out uh, their AI strategic plans. And I think the uh, recent executive order and accompanying OMB memo addresses a number of these. And I would say that there are three main barriers to adoption. The first is personnel. You have to figure out how to get technical talent into positions where you can explore and responsibly think about the adoption of these kinds of tools. And one statistic I'll give uh, to you from a, a recent survey is that of AI PhDs, roughly 60% go into industry, roughly a quarter goes into academic positions, and less than 1% considers employment in the public sector. And that is something that very much has to, to change. Second is uh, there are really significant computing uh, barriers, which are the kind of backbone to building out or doing inference on this kind of a system. And not all agencies will be similarly situated, for instance, to have access to modern forms of cloud computing that allow you to scale with the kind of uh, processing requirements for very large models. And one uh, proposal that was also advanced in the executive order and, and uh, was proposed in the CREATE AI Act uh, is the proposal for a national AI research resource, which provides secure privacy-preserving access to higher forms of compute. And one of the things 
that uh, we really recommended when we uh, wrote a white paper on this before the federal task force was constituted was to really ensure that agencies, uh, in addition to researchers and small businesses, can avail themselves of that kind of computing infrastructure. The third, I think, is related to this proposal, is that the data infrastructure really does need to be built out. There are some agencies that have more balkanized forms of uh, data infrastructure that make it harder to kind of integrate and build out uh, these kinds of AI solutions. Well, thank you for that, Professor, and thank you for talking about the executive order that the president just issued on October 30th. Uh, this is a very helpful um, introduction to the subject. I'm going to have to stop here for a break. And when we get back, uh, we'll hear from our next guest, Professor Catherine Sharkey. You are listening to Between the Lions with ACUS on the Federal News Network. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference. Uh, you're listening on the Federal News Network. We've been talking about federal agency use of AI in their administrative procedures. We are joined now by Professor Catherine Sharkey from the NYU School of Law. Professor Sharkey has a, an amazingly impressive background, a two-time graduate of Yale, a Rhodes Scholar, and a former clerk to a Supreme Court justice. Um, she now is, amongst other things, uh, an ACUS senior fellow, and she has written two important reports for us uh, that have resulted in ACUS recommendations from the Assembly. The first, which she co-authored with Professor Ho, who is also a, a, a guest before her, um, and two other professors, and it was called Government by Algorithm. The second report studied the use of algorithmic tools in retrospective review of agency regulations, and uh, Professor Sharkey will um, will help us understand both of those concepts. Professor, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to really drill down with you on agency use of AI and look at the uh, FDA and uh, other examples. So um, le let me ask you first that an agency that's um, gearing up to use AI uh, has to um, develop experts and uh, the needed infrastructure, uh, both of those result in um, expenses. And so the question is, what benefits might an agency um, uh, realize from investing in the technology that it needs to work with uh, AI and other algorithmic uh, tools and machine learning? So the buildup of internal capacity in this domain is really critical. It enables an agency to tailor the AI and machine learning tools, you know, to their mission-driven uses. And I think that's very important. Secondly, I think that investigating governmental uses of AI will give us some very good insights into many big-picture issues that are being faced in both the private and public sector about transparency, accountability, reasons giving. These are things where governmental uses are typically held to a very high standard. So I think that the study of governmental uses can be extremely insightful for thinking about how to regulate these technologies out in the private sector. Okay, I see. So expanding technical capacity um, helps perform uh, several of the functions uh, that uh, administrative agencies do more effectively. So uh, I understand that. Has um, uh, the FDA or others in increased the AI software substantively in a, in a way that changed how it regulates? Absolutely. So the FDA was one of the deep dives that we did in our first government by algorithm report that you alluded to. And the first point that I'd make is it's not surprising that we would find um, frontier uses of AI technologies in agencies that are situated to regulate those technologies out in the real world. So let's take the FDA. The FDA regulates pharmaceutical drugs and medical devices. And today, the FDA has approved something like 600 AI-enabled medical devices. So if you think about that, they have to be giving a lot of thought about how to 
structure their internal regulatory review and regulatory analyses um, in order to understand how to regulate these technologies out in the real world. And to my mind, the FDA is at the forefront, all the Department of Health and Human Services, because of the use of AI technologies in healthcare applications. And I do think that it's going to shift the regulatory paradigm. So with regard to the FDA, I think we're going to see the agency investing more and more resources in post-market review, so the monitoring, evaluation of how AI-enabled technologies are doing. And this is a kind of catchphrase in this area that in order to regulate AI or any kind of automated software-enacted technology that learns over time, you're going to have to think about this over the life cycle. So not just something like you do your review ex ante before something goes out on the market mm. and then hands off. I think this is going to be very transformative. Oh, I see. There's, uh, there's a lot to it that uh, people might uh, think at first. Um, another uh, emerging agency use case for AI is uh, retrospective review, um, and that's an administrative law phrase. Um, that uh, you'll explain for us. Um, and it's also been the subject of your most recent report uh, for ACUS that uh, you presented uh, just in, in June of this year. So what is retrospective review and why are agencies turning to AI in order to accomplish it? Right. So retrospective review is the process whereby agencies take a look back. They look at regulations that were passed uh, sometime in the past, and they are reassessing the costs and benefits of those regulations. So, for example, they would be looking at these past rules periodically to consider whether any existing regulations on the books are duplicative or inconsistent or outmoded. So it's a, it's a good governance practice. It's something actually ACUS has had on its radar and has given recommendations since 1995, encouraging agencies to do more retrospective review, that um, this will lead to you know, efficiencies and also better rulemaking, prospective rulemaking, if you can think about con- consistently whether the regulations and rules you have on the books are um, efficient and um, not outdated. The ACUS report that I did was really inspired by seeing that there were some very exciting pilot experimental uses going on in a few different agencies. So within the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Transportation, Department of Defense, and a very interesting pilot from the General Services Administration. And the idea was that you could use, you know, AI technologies almost is um, very well suited to this kind of task of looking through reams and reams of previous regulations and looking for things like inconsistencies, broken citations in the Federal Register, and the like. So that was kind of the inspiration. One other thing I might say is the technology seems ready-made for it because it's a kind of practice that Everyone seems to think is good governance. There have been, as I said, ACUS recommendations. There's also been executive orders from the Obama, Trump, Biden administrations about encouraging agencies to do retrospective review. But it's very labor-intensive to do it without technological assistance, and it tends to be low priority. So it's good governance practice, but low priority and very labor-intensive and costly. So if we can harness these technologies to automate this process, it seems like a very good use of algorithmic or AI technologies in the administrative state. You know, sometimes uh, AI gets things wrong. You know, we've seen uh, cases like uh, the the, the lawyer who uh, relied on AI to file a brief and uh, AI made up case citations. So um, what's the uh, the record or the experience at FDA uh, in terms of the accuracy of, of what the AI, uh, AI is doing for them? Yeah, it's a very good question. I can tell you that with regard to the pilot that was done at HHS to use this technology in retrospective review, it ended up being 
published as part of um, a, an actual rule called the Regulatory Cleanup Initiative. You know, what they basically did is they sent the output from the AI algorithms to each of the sub-agencies' subject matter experts. So within HHS, you know, the rules that were flagged as being inconsistent or outmoded uh, that were rela relevant to the FDA came to the FDA. Those related to CMS went there. And from my report, let's put it this way, it was good that there was a human subject matter review of the output. So I do think that it's a very good idea, first of all, to encourage these kinds of piloting, so to encourage them in places where you can, to use one agency official's terms, which I actually heard again and again, quote unquote, fail cheaply. You know, mm. so if an error, if there is an error, uh, we're not going to have kind of a catastrophic harm <laughs> arising from it. But also to think carefully during these pilots to have a kind of baseline against which you would compare this. I also understand, you know, within the FDA that they have various kinds of pilots using these technologies and they test them. They have kind of regulatory sandboxes in which they're testing them under controlled conditions, but then they understand that they need to test these things using real-world data and that things can happen. So I think that we're at a forefront where this technology is very exciting, but we do have to think very carefully about setting up guardrails and oversight. Let me ask you a little quick, uh, real briefly, about uh, the executive order that the president issued on October 30th. Um, I know it's 100 uh, pages, and you may not have had a chance to get all the way through it yet, but is there anything you could say at this point about how that executive order affects uh, administrative agencies? Sure. Yes, I have. I read it with uh, great interest, and there's a section that's dedicated to advancing federal government use of AI. So to my mind, this is, as you said, it's a long, sprawling executive order. It covers a very wide terrain, but I think it's very important that it includes thinking about federal governmental use of AI. And I would say very importantly, two things. One, it does um, hit the theme that you opened with, namely a lot of the order is directed towards measures to build internal capacity. There are things about trying to attract and retain um, those with expertise in AI and how to do so within the constraints of, of uh, governmental hiring practices, et cetera. And there is also a real effort to emphasize coordination across the federal government. It sets up through OMB, an interagency council that's supposed to coordinate developments and uses of AI across the federal government. And to my mind, this is something, you know, it rings true at ACUS. ACUS is designed to have these kinds of reports out there to help facilitate information sharing, coordination across different agencies, like the executive order, which uses the phrase of um, trying to encourage experimentation and pilots um, within federal agencies with an eye towards thinking about best practices and use cases that can be showcased from which other agencies can learn. In some sense, that's at the crux of our ACUS reports. They're designed with that goal in mind. Their most significant contributions, I would say, would be to both model and encourage facilitation of this kind of sharing of information and expertise. So we uncover pilots within one agency and then hope that the fruits of what we discover and report on can influence others. Well, I appreciate you talking about ACUS, and uh, I'm always happy to hear that uh, we are having and can have a role in helping agencies uh, do what they need to do. Uh, thank you. That was um, a terrific presentation and explanation of uh, agency use of some of these tools. And um, uh, thank you. And uh, we'll be right back with Professor Carrie Colanisi to talk about some of the legal implications of agency use of algorithmic tools. This is Between the Lines with ACUS on the Federal News Network. Lots more ahead.
Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for staying with us. This is Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference, and we're talking about federal agency use of algorithmic tools, including artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm pleased to say now that we are joined by Professor Carrie Colonese from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. The professor is a three-time graduate of the University of Michigan with a Ph.D. in political science and a master's in public policy to go along with his J.D., He's a recognized national expert in administrative law, especially in regulation and rulemaking, and he has founded several resources that are important to the field of administrative law. Uh, He's also in his past been a uh, professor at the Kennedy School of Government, so he has a wide range of expertise that he'll share with us. And uh, I'm happy to say that he's a senior fellow with with ACUS, longtime uh, public member before that, and he's uh, author of the ACUS Report entitled A Framework for Government Use of Machine Learning. Thank you so much for being uh, here with us, Professor. Delighted to be with you, Andy. Professor Ho, as you might have uh, heard, gave us um, uh, his take on uh, the definition of AI and uh, algorithmic tools. And uh, I read that you have an interesting take uh, on that subject, uh, which you said that your peach cobbler recipe is an algorithm. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. (laughs) Algorithms have been with us for centuries. Any mathematical uh, equation, 2 plus 2 equals 4, is an algorithm. And yes, indeed, my peach cobbler recipe is an algorithm. An algorithm is just sort of a step-by-step procedure. In fact, so much of administrative law, uh, so much of law in general, can be thought of as an algorithm. What we are talking about today, though, of course, is a new kind of algorithm uh, that's sweeping the private sector and starting to uh, percolate through and be adopted in the public sector as well. And that's the machine learning algorithm that Professor Ho described that works much more autonomously to uh, make predictions, uh, to to find patterns, and to do so in a way that builds on data. This is a a type of mathematical algorithm that's been around for actually some decades, but uh, it's really been in the last 20 years or so with modern computing and access to a large volume of data that these uh, machine learning algorithms have been able to deliver what look like artificial intelligence, anything from making predictions about what videos we'd like to watch next on Netflix, to uh, self-driving cars, to the kind of generative AI that Professor Ho talked about with, for example, ChatGPT that we're seeing just over the last six months really transforming uh, the discourse about artificial intelligence and its role in society. So it's an exciting uh, new area because computing technology has advanced so much that it allows for much more sophisticated, complex, and in many ways more opaque, what are sometimes called black box uses of these algorithms that are known as machine learning algorithms. That is really helpful, Professor. So when we talk about AI, uh, that's an example of machine learning uh, algorithms. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of definitions. There's probably no one single definition of artificial intelligence. And even with respect to machine learning algorithms, there's many different types of them. But the general properties are the same, that they're somewhat autonomous. They go out, once you give them a a very complex stepwise process, they go out and find patterns in the data uh, that even humans may not be able to detect sometimes. And they can do it certainly much more quickly even than humans, and that makes them very powerful indeed. Let's talk about government use of these tools. Uh, In the report you wrote for ACUS, you had a chapter on uh, the legal issues that uh, are presented by government use of AI. Can you discuss some of them for us, please? Sure. Well, I think it's important, by the way, first of all, to distinguish between how two ways at least in which these algorithms can be used. They can be used first to just sort of supplement 
human decision making in the administrative process or you know by government agencies in in any capacity second would be actually to substitute for human decision making and i think the agency should recognize that there's probably a pretty clear green light to go forward with uses that simply supplement uh, human decision making the really interesting challenge is are uh, when uh, agencies might be using AI tools to substitute for humans so that people might be interacting with a digital robot, in effect, and having potentially consequential decisions made by government through algorithms, through these machine learning algorithms uh, connected to automated systems. And that's, uh, you know, I think for many people in the public, kind of an uneasy situation, although I suspect with time we're going to become much more comfortable with it. But right now, maybe that's the part that makes many people uneasy. Given that so much of administrative law is motivated by a concern about delegation of governmental authority, uh, I looked uh, in that report and actually uh, an earlier article from 2017 that I co-authored entitled Regulating by Robot, I looked at sort of, let's assume the worst case or the best case, I don't know how you want to think about it, but the, the case in which the robots actually take over and are used as a substitute for human decision-making. Can we square that with basic administrative law principles? Is that a, offensive to the non-delegation doctrine? If these are black box algorithms, how does that square with principles of open government and transparency? You talked with Professor Ho about bias. Are there equal protection concerns? There's a host of legal issues, certainly, that can be raised by the use of AI tools uh, by government agencies. I think, in short, the bottom line answer that I gave in the report and have developed in other work is that even assuming uh, the AI tools are substituting for humans, as long as agencies are doing so responsibly, creating these tools in, in a responsible way, validating them, and disclosing some basic information about how they're working, there's not an insurmountable legal barrier to using AI tools. And in fact, in some ways, they're going to be superior in delivering outcomes measured against standard administrative law principles. One might even say, in some respects, they are the you know, really the epitome of government that's accountable uh, when uh, they are set up and responsibly run. You're starting to get me a little bit nervous when you, you say the, um, the algorithms can be superior to humans. It, it makes me think of all of the um, concern about them surpassing humans and taking over. Um, but uh, let me ask you about another. Well, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, uh, humans don't always make the right calls. Think about the unfortunate situations of individuals who are injured, killed, just plain old traffic stops. If we could automate that in kind of in basic enforcement systems, we would eliminate that. Uh, we also know that humans have a host of other kinds of flaws to us, biases, deficiencies of memory. We have long delays in adjudication. Uh, if some of these systems could be automated and built around AI tools that are well validated and designed and operated responsibly, uh, we could improve governmental performance. That at least is the the aspiration that we should all be putting forward for AI. Of course, we can talk further about problems, but they're not legally insurmountable problems. That's, uh, I think, the bottom line message from my, my report to ACUS. I see. Um, all right. Uh, we've only got another minute or two, but uh, let me ask you about uh, areas that I know you're working on and writing uh, right now. What about agency use of contractors, agency use of AI for uh, with contractors, and um, uh, using it for uh, procurement, which is a, a big part of what agencies do. Sure. Well, there's uh, now a growing field of procure tech. So 
So AI tools can be used to help agencies in the procurement process itself, uh, whether it's in uh, parsing proposals or creating chatbots for uh, answering questions about procurement-related questions and auditing contractual performance and supply chain management. Uh, but there's also, I think, an important dimension about AI and procurement that relates to uh, the human capital and capacity concerns that Professor Ho was highlighting earlier. If the government doesn't have the in-house capacity to build these tools, how are they going to build them? Well, they're going to procure services uh, from private sector firms. And what I've been writing about lately are uh, a set of recommendations and, and best practices for how to structure government contracts in the AI space so that the government can have the degree of transparency needed to withstand judicial review later uh, or to just reassure the public that these tools have been used responsibly. Unfortunately, to date, some private contractors uh, will simply claim trade secret protection over all of what they're doing with respect to AI. And uh, I think there's uh, leverage for the government and even a duty by the government to make sure that those contracts are ensuring adequate transparency will be available to the public after the fact. Uh, those same contracts can also include uh, various principles for uh, developing these tools in a responsible manner, and I think that's important as well. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for uh, helping us navigate through some of the legal issues and other issues presented by agency use of machine learning. And uh, I look forward to uh, tasting your peach cobbler someday. Um, I'll have a lot more respect for it now that I know it's an algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Andy. Delighted to talk with you. Um, uh, thank you again. We'll be right back with Alexandra Reeve-Givens, who's the director of the Center for Democracy and Technology. You're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for staying with us. This is Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference, and we're talking about federal agency use of algorithmic tools, including artificial intelligence. Our next guest is Alexandra Reeve-Givens, President and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology and a longtime friend of the Administrative Conference. Previously, Ms. Reeve-Givens was the founding executive director of the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at Georgetown where she also taught the same subject. So first off, uh, Alex, please tell us about the work of the center and what it does. Absolutely. So the Center for Democracy and Technology is a nonprofit, nonpartisan group based in D.C. And for over 30 years, we've advocated on behalf of users and regular people who are impacted by technology. That means we focus on things like online privacy, online access to information, government surveillance through technology, civic technology. So when the government is using tech to help deliver services to people, how to make sure it uses it fairly and well. And then we also have a big program around elections as well. Well, that's uh, quite important work that you do there. Uh, yeah, on the first couple of days of November this year, you attended a, a historic uh, international conference on AI uh, that was held in the United Kingdom. What happened at that meeting and what was accomplished? Yeah, so this was a big moment. On November 1st and 2nd, the UK government convened uh, leaders from around the world, including China, interestingly, for a two-day summit focused on approaches to AI testing and governance. And I was honored to be chosen as a civil society delegate, which had been an important priority for the US to make sure that civil society voices were in the room alongside government representatives and the tech CEOs who were there. Now, what was interesting is the summit was originally quite narrow in scope. Um, the UK government in particular was focused on highlighting the risks of highly capable foundation models and how they might impact people's lives in future. So, you know, existential catastrophic risks like teaching people how to synthesize new biotechnology weapons or how to operationalize large scale cyber attacks. 
for myself and other civil society advocates in the room, that work is hugely important. But we also wanted to make sure that governments were focused on how AI is impacting people's lives and their rights and the functioning of government right now. So, you know, when AI is being used to decide who gets a job or to detect fraud in public benefits programs or is being used as face recognition technology by law enforcement, all of those need attention, too. And those are some of the priorities that we were highlighting at the summit. I see. Uh, we've heard a little bit about the president's executive order on uh, that he issued on October 30th on AI used by both the federal government and the private sector. Could you tell us a little bit more about that executive order and a word or two about the OMB guidance that uh, followed it? So the executive order um, published by the Biden administration really does a phenomenal job of capturing both those near-term risks I was just mentioning and uh, preparing the U.S. on the long-term risks as well. It was released on October 30th and really takes a sweeping whole-of-government approach uh, to the responsible governance of AI. I was lucky to be there in the East Room when the president signed it, and in his remarks, he underscored that the U.S. is a leader in AI innovation, and much as we are a leader in AI innovation, we need to be a leader in the responsible governance of AI, too. And the executive order is really kind of using every power in the federal government's capacity to put weight behind that in a way that I think is going to impact many of your listeners across different agencies. You know, what did that look like in practice? It's a command to different agencies to speak to their regulated sectors about how AI is being used and the impact it might have and how existing laws apply. So we see guidance to the Department of Labor, for example, to issue guidance and reports on the use of AI to surveil workers, to manage workers in the work site, the impact that that has on health and safety and workers' rights. We see guidance to housing and urban development and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to uh, issue guidance for tenant screening algorithms, which are being used to decide who gets access to an apartment in a way that's impacting people's rights. We have the Commerce Department issuing guidance around watermarking and content authenticity initiatives uh, and another report on open source AI. So really, he's mobilizing all of these agencies to look at their various sectors and think about how AI might transform it. And then, critically, saying to the agencies, we need to be thoughtful and responsible when the government is using or buying AI systems, too. And there, there's a whole suite of kind of recommendations uh, and requirements in there. And then also, as you said, uh, was coupled a couple of days later with guidance from the Office of Management and Budget that will bind all federal agencies in their use of AI as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about the how the OMB guidance uh, directs and applies to federal administrative agencies? Sure. So the OMB guidance um, takes the form of an M-memo from the director of OMB to federal agencies about their use of AI. And what's interesting is that right now it's actually a proposed memorandum, and they're putting it out for public comment, which is unusual for OMB, and shows the importance of the issues at stake, and that they're listening to the broader public saying these AI questions are important and we, and we need real focus on them. One of the key features about this OMP guidance is that it spells out examples of safety impacting or rights impacting uses of AI and says when an agency is engaging in one of these uses or something similar, it has to meet minimum requirements. They list out some examples of things that are kind of presumed to be safety impacting or rights impacting. You know, this is use cases involving AI in the movement of vehicles. Uh, deciding immigration or detention status, mortgage underwriting, performance management for the federal workforce. And what it says is that if you are deploying one of these uses of AI inside a federal agency, you need to carry out an impact assessment that includes assessing the potential risks, testing for bias. You need to test the performance of the system in a real world context. You need to independently evaluate the system. So these are many more thresholds right now before an agency decides to use one of these systems. And then even once that decision is made, there are ongoing obligations for monitoring of the system and how it's being performed, training for people who are operating or relying on the system, and then for the rights impacting uses, you know, things like the use in detention or in immigration, incorporating feedback from affected groups, opt-out mechanisms, human alternatives, 
And if you do all this and think that it's not going to meet the requirements, there's an obligation for agencies not to use the system, which is a really important uh, message to send here about the government being an informed consumer of these products and making sure that they are appropriate for use. A couple other interesting things in there. Um, so agencies need to designate a chief AI officer that's going to coordinate the agency's use of AI, make sure that these assessments and impact testing is being done, and critically promoting innovative uses of AI. So this is viewed both as an opportunity for agencies to be thoughtful in their use of AI, as well as risk mitigation to make sure they're being careful. And then finally, there's an important transparency element in there, too. A couple of years ago, Congress passed legislation mandating an AI use inventory, a public place where the public can see what AI systems agencies are using with some detail. And the OMB memo goes into more detail about this. The agencies have to register their uses so the public can see them and have some detail for people to be able to understand the testing that has happened. Now, as we move into the public comment period, it'll be interesting to see if those are strengthened a little bit more. I think advocates want them to be. But again, there's a really important thumb on this scale here for agencies to act responsibly and carefully and test these systems and do it with some measure of public engagement and accountability as well. A lot of people are concerned about the potential loss of jobs, both in the private sector and in federal government agencies. Do you have an opinion on uh, what AI will do about that? Well, I think that concern isn't just in the federal government sector, but really across the knowledge economy. When you think to the Writers Guild strikes that was happening in Hollywood, a big piece of that was about um, displacement as well. You know, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic on this than most. There's no question that AI is powerful in terms of creating first drafts of text, synthesizing information, and, you know, creating good looking photographs, graphic images very quickly. So certainly there are some traditional functions that many of us in the knowledge economy would have had that could be displaced. But I like to think that the human element of being a strategist, of being a reviewer, of being an editor, of doing quality control, that can't be replaced. You know, we need humans to actually know, you know, what is the appropriate output of this? Is this going to be persuasive to my audience? Is this going to have the intended goal? And so what I envision this being is really an efficiency tool that, of course, changes the way in which we work, but hopefully in a way that is additive and makes us more efficient and better at our jobs rather than fully displacing them. Okay, well, I understand. Uh, Thank you, Alex. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, You really got us up to date on what's going on in AI. And thank you to all of our guests for sharing their expertise on this subject. In the coming months, we may come back to this because we barely scratched the surface and explore other current topics of administrative procedures. If you want to learn more about ACUS, go to www.acus.gov. For now, thank you all for listening, and I hope we pass the audition. You've been listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.